Good morning. Today we start our winter series that we're calling Big Life. How we can take the big ideas of the life God's called us to and actually experience them in the footprints of our life. Our desire to follow God, our desire to make a difference in the world around us. I believe most Christians would say, that's my desire. But there is a disconnect between those intentions that we articulate and the day-to-day choices. So this is about shoe leather, not just intention. This is about time, talents, and treasures. I spend a lot of time on Wikipedia these days. You can tell some things about people on Wikipedia. It's not real history. It's popular history, but I can learn a lot more about a person by two things, where they spend their time and where they spend their money. Now, I'm not going to ask to look at your checkbook. (laughs) I I want you to understand the reason why we're going after these things isn't because we want more money, although the way that we're going to fulfill the mission God's called us to is that all of us achieve a level of generosity But this is not so much about that. This is about a battle for your heart. And Jesus is the one that put it well. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. I've never met a truly mature Christian that is not also a generous Christian. It's the condition of our heart that we're really after. And that's why today as we begin this study, we don't dive right into what I hope will be both challenging and very helpful and hopeful teaching about our resources. Before we do that, we really need to understand where the disconnect comes from. We're guided by a different, a different map. What we want to do today is to have a course adjustment. Today is about setting our sights, talking about what a truly significant life is. And we're going to be in Jeremiah chapter 9. So I invite you to turn there with me. Jeremiah chapter 9, we're going to begin by reading verses 23 and 24. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise boast in their wisdom, or the strong boast in their strength, or the rich boast in their riches. But let the one who boasts boast about this that they understand and know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For in these ones, I delight. Today is about significance, success. In some sense, all of us want to know we have lived a significant life. Now, For most of us, that doesn't mean getting an article in Wikipedia. (laughs) But we want to know in some way we've lived a life that matters. I remember um, about three years ago, I was teaching on this very passage, and I I, uh, decided to Google the phrase significant life. And you know what mostly showed up? Obituaries. It seems to matter when people's lives are described that people say they lived a significant life. They left their mark. We all, we all hunger for that. I want you just to picture somebody that you admire. Picture someone that you admire and you say, that's a truly successful person. What about that person's life to you makes them significant? What do you think of? 
It's interesting as Jeremiah looks at what makes a life significant, 2,600 years ago, it's as though he is sitting right in the middle of American culture because he describes the three things that most of us would look at and say, that is success. First is knowledge. Let not the wise boast in their wisdom. The the Hebrew word for knowledge there is practical knowledge, more like know-how. Someone who not only has information, but knows how to put that information to work in a way that's productive. The Thomas Edison kind of know-how. Certainly in our city, with all the colleges and institutions that are here, knowledge is regarded as a high value for a significant life. The second thing he talks about is strength. Let not the strong boast in their strength. The Hebrew word there is not just physical prowess, but about influence. It's about authority. And then the third thing he talks about is riches or affluence, the things that we amass that tell the world that we have succeeded. The balance in our checking account, the trophies on our shelves, the art collection on our walls, the quality of car in our one or two garages. It's interesting. Two and a half millennium ago, Jeremiah describes us because today it's about knowledge, it's about influence and authority, and it's about stuff. I guess it's always been about that. Jeremiah says we are not to boast in those things. The word boast is the same word for glory. Glory in Hebrew is about worth. And so what Jeremiah is saying to his listeners and to us today is, don't find your worth in those things. And yet my guess is, no matter how serious your intention of being a Christ follower, every day you struggle with whether you measure up with the world around you like that. We are quietly driven by those very things. Now, we're going to In a moment, look at the rest of the passage where Jeremiah says, this is where your real significance is to be found. But before we do that, I want to back up and read this chapter for you, at least a portion of it, so you understand the context. Jeremiah is writing to a group of people who are God's people, but God's people have misplaced their priorities. They have gone after idols, and consequently, they have gotten so derailed from the life that God had for them, not just as individuals, but as a whole people. Jeremiah says, you can't keep going on this way. You're going to lose everything. Let's back up to verse 12. What man is wise enough to understand this? Who has been instructed by the Lord and can explain it? Why has the land been ruined and laid waste like a desert that no one can cross? The Lord said, it is because they have forsaken my law, which I set before them. They have not obeyed me or followed my laws. Instead, they have followed the stubbornness of their hearts. They have followed the Baals, as their fathers taught them. Therefore, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. See, I will make this people eat bitter food and drink poisoned water. I will scatter them among nations that neither they nor their fathers have known, and I will pursue them with the sword until I have destroyed them. 
This is what the Lord Almighty says. Consider now, call for the wailing women to come. Send for the most skillful of them. Let them come quickly and wail over us till our eyes overflow with tears. The sound of wailing is heard from Zion. That's Jerusalem. How ruined we are. How great is our shame. We must leave our land because our houses are in ruins. Does that change this passage for you? He goes on, let not the wise boast in their wisdom, the strong in their strength, the rich in their riches. Let the one who boasts boast about this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, righteousness on the earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. Verse 25, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all who are circumcised only in the flesh. Might want to underline that. So, This is Israel. This is God's people. Generation upon generation, they have turned themselves over to idols. So God has finally reached the point where he's removed the blessing and the protection. People are going to come in and they're going to lay waste to the land. Why? It's in verse 25. Because they're only circumcised in the flesh. I'm sorry. (laughs) I can't believe it. Please turn off your, uh, your, your cell phones. <laughs> Where was I? <laughs> Why? Because they're only circumcised in the flesh. What does that mean? What he's saying is the children of Israel still think of themselves as the people of God. Every male child that's born has been circumcised as a covenant ritual that he is part of the people of God, but it's only the flesh. In other words, their hearts are not set apart for God. You see, we have to guard against that because culture pulls us. Culture says, this is where you find your security. This is where you find your significance. And we can get derailed. And then we don't understand why spiritually we're not experiencing the life that God calls us to that's described in Scripture, the life that is abundant, that is full of purpose, through which God does immense and glorious things. We're not experiencing it. We verbalize faith in Christ, but our heart is owned by other idols. Our idols are knowledge and influence and stuff. And we want God to bless all that so he becomes our success strategy for having more stuff. And elements of the American Christian scene have turned Christianity into the worship of those idols. If you just follow Jesus enough, you'll be ever increasing in all of these things. And I think God's saying to those parts of Christianity, you've gone after Baal. You're circumcised only in the flesh. You worship things. And that leads us to the second part of this. If we're not to find our worth, our significance, in the very things that our culture elevates as the things by which we're measured, how do we find it? And that takes us again back to verse 24. Let the one who boasts, boast, in other words, find their worth in this. That's a very important word. This isn't multiple choice. This is the thing, the source of your worth. And what is it? That they understand and know me. 
what God redeemed us for, what is at the heart of our life is an intimate, passionate relationship with him. God's after Eden, and Eden wasn't so much about the garden. It was about God walking in intimacy with Adam and Eve. What the cross makes possible is reconciliation to God. It's always been about relationship. So how do I get my life back on track so that my day-to-day choices lead to that life? I have to get the first thing first again in my life. I have to recognize that God didn't save me just so those things could be now redeemed and used for good. God saved me first and foremost so that he could be our most cherished possession and that his relationship with us could be the most important thing. I remember growing up in a Christian, Christian home. My dad was a minister. I went to Bible college, ended up in ministry, got married when I was about 23, and for the first 10 years or so of uh, our married life, had a privilege of traveling, doing concert work, and speaking to young people all over the United States. It was just a really fantastic life. But somewhere as I was turning 30 years of age, I became extremely dissatisfied. And I think that that's not uncommon. I became extremely dissatisfied with uh, my spirituality. I couldn't put my finger on it, but it just felt like there should be more. I would worked really hard at, at learning how to be in the ministry, but it seemed hollow. I, I felt like there hadn't been any real change in my thinking or in my life. It wasn't like I wasn't getting better at serving Jesus, but I wasn't changing. There, there was just something, and I couldn't put my finger on it. And I thought, if this is all there is, if this is all there is, and I've actually turned this not only into my faith, but my job, I'm not very hopeful about the future. I remember at the time there was a guy named Robert Tilton on TV. Robert Tilton looked like Moses. This glorious white hair, just kind of coughed up and back. And and he would talk to God, and then he'd talk to me and tell me that if I just send him (laughs) a seed of faith, that God would bless me. And then he'd look up to God and he'd speak in tongues and I'd go, God, is that what I'm missing? I hope that's not what I'm missing. But is that what I'm missing, God? Am I missing some other mystical experience with you? God, what is it that I'm missing? I was just hungry. I was just hungry for something. I had a smaller library than I have today at the time, but I did have some books that I think God directed me back to by A.W. Tozer. And the books were The Knowledge of the Holy and The Pursuit of God. And as I read this, it was like, it was like stepping out of a warehouse and recognizing that there's a sky. It's like living your whole life in a warehouse and stepping outside and finding the blue sky. That's what it was like for me. Because he described a world in which a man named Enoch would be the norm. There's this little statement of a man named Enoch in the Bible, and this is all it says about him. Enoch walked with God, and then he was not, for God took him. 
a man who walked with God so intimately. He had so achieved the big life that there was no more living on earth left for him. And the next step in that experience of God was glory. I heard somebody describe that to a child. What does it mean Enoch walked with God and he wasn't? And I heard the mom say, well, Enoch and God were really good friends, and they used to go on lots of walks together. And maybe one day they walked and walked and walked, and they walked real far, and it got real late, and God said to him, we're closer to my house than yours. Why don't you just come over? Love that thought. Enoch's a bit of a mystery. We don't understand him, but we know that that's what the cross made possible. What Enoch was as an exception in the Old Testament, the cross makes possible because we've been reconciled to God. He is Abba. We are meant to walk intimately with him. I would read this and it would just pour over me. And I realized that what my faith had been at that time was about accomplishing something for God. It was really all about the stuff. It was about using the stuff for the kingdom. I was so busy focusing on all the stuff, even in the name of Jesus, that I had missed out on God himself. And about that time, we gave birth. Well, I didn't give birth. I like to say we, but you know who did. Vitalina. And I'm so glad it was her. I could, oh my gosh. And my son came out. And I got to hold him. And back then there was the TV miniseries Roots. Anybody of you know Roots? I had that Kunta Kinte moment. <laughs> Behold! And something in me as I became a father, and as God was using Tozer and Scripture to open me up to this intimacy that was just about God, just about Him knowing him, understanding him. As that began to happen, and as, as I had this son, I finally understood what it meant that God was my Abba, my daddy. And I realized it was never about accomplishing. It was never about trying to gain his pleasure. I already had his pleasure. I already had his favor. It was about him. See, that's what Jeremiah is saying that the whole nation of Israel had forgotten. And that tells us that it's certainly possible that a whole people of God, whole churches can get so derailed that we forget what the one true significant life is. And that's the life spent in passionate pursuit of knowing and being with God. Let's look at how he lays that out for us. The phrase understand and know. This isn't just about information. Understand comes out of the word consider to comprehend. It's about passion. I really want to understand who God is. I want to bring it into my life so that I I comprehend it. I have aha moments that lead me to glorious moments of worship. And then the word know in Hebrew is relational. The kind of knowing that is between friends. God says, I just don't want you to have me listed as some set of beliefs. I want to be in relationship with you. So when we go forward, God himself gives us an outline. 
that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. This is the core of what it would mean to know and understand me. And it boils down to two things. First of all, who he is, and secondly, what he does, how he interacts with the human race. The first phrase is about who God is, that I am the Lord. The phrasing is very intentional. We see two different statements here that speak of God. The first is the I am, the great I am statement that the people of Israel would understand. The name that God chose to use for himself when he said to Moses, tell them I am has sent you. I am who I am, the self-existent one. The God who came with Moses to Egypt and delivered them. The God who through the Passover lamb and the blood delivered them into their salvation. I am. Then, did you ever notice in the Old Testament that the phrase Lord is written different ways? In this case, it's a capital L and then lowercase capitals. Do you see that? Every time you see that, that's the name Yahweh, God's chosen name for himself. Yahweh first appears in Genesis chapter two. Genesis chapter one, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. All throughout that chapter, uses the term Elohim, which is the general term for creator God, Elohim. The word Yahweh, the personal name of God, the one that he chooses, only shows up in Genesis two. What happens in Genesis two? The creation of man, the garden. So the term Yahweh is God's name in the context of the relationship that he wants to have with people. And so when he's saying that I am Yahweh, he's reminding them of the relationship that they're supposed to boast in, that's supposed to be their source of greatest worth and glory. It's who he is. And then what does he do? What does Yahweh, this great friend of humanity, do for us? Well, he exercises three things in relation to mankind. The first thing he exercises is kindness, and then the second one's justice, and then righteousness. Let's just take them piece by piece. Kindness is God's mercy. Loving kindness. It's interesting that for most of us, we would define God exclusively around that idea of God being kind or God being love. Walk up to the average person on the street, ask them to define God in one word. They'll say God is love. But the way most of us think about God would make the next two descriptions seem contradictory. (laughs) Because not only does he act in loving kindness towards us, but he also acts with justice. He always responds to our choices and our decisions in the appropriate way. Where there is sin, God will judge and deal with that sin. Where there is righteousness, God will bless that righteousness. His actions are always appropriate in his response to us. How does God both act in love for us but also act justly? And then let's add a third. He executes righteousness on the earth. Righteousness is rightness. God is saying, I am righteous, and I am exercising 
that righteousness on you. My expectations are that you will be holy because I am holy. I want you to reflect me. So I'm, I'm exercising that through you. Now, where does the love of God and the justice of God, the love that wants relationship with us, that created us for intimacy, the justice that requires God to deal with sin and the rebellion in our lives, and the righteous standard that he calls us to that ultimately because of our rebellion we've all failed, where do those come together? The only place they come together is in the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus came to earth and lived the righteous life that you and I could not live so that he could bear the punishment that God's justice required for the sins of the world. And because Jesus bore the justice of God, it was satisfied And now we can be exclusively recipients of the loving kindness of God rather than the justice that we deserve. God says, all these things are true about me. And I exercise them perfectly in relation to humanity. The cross is where he does that. And the cross is what makes it possible for us to have this intimate relationship with God. And that leads us to a truly significant life. Look what he says at the end of verse 24. In these I take delight. In other words, God's greatest delight in us is found when our greatest delight is in him. I love that. It's interesting how Jeremiah coins these three things, but as I thought about that, another three things came to mind. Another three statements that God says through a prophet, our life ought to reflect and it's Micah 6, 8. I'd like you to say it with me. He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. Here's what it boils down to. If my life is about a passionate pursuit of knowing and understanding God, my life being lined up to that purpose then uses everything it has towards that end. And what is true of God becomes true of me. I will exercise justice in the world around me. I will act with loving mercy with the world around me. And that phrase that says to walk humbly with your God, that's absolutely about righteousness. It's about me saying I'm not in charge of my life, God's in charge, and I'm walking with him my life matches God's life. I'm in righteousness. So ultimately, everything I have, everything I know, everything I do, gets shaped, gets directed when I get the one thing that matters first. The only truly significant life is a life that's absolutely dedicated to the pursuit of knowing and being with God. So let's pray for a minute and our worship team will come and lead us in a closing song. Just sit quietly and consider the gap between the intentions of your faith in following God and the reality of your day-to-day choices and how you use your knowledge, your influence, and your resources. 
And my guess is if you were honest, there's a separation there. And maybe this is a good moment for you to make a fresh commitment in your heart. Just say, Lord, I've been distracted. I've been pursuing the stuff and priorities of this world. And what I really want is what you want for me. So, Father, expand my love for you, my hunger for you. Help me to pursue my friendship with you above everything else. And then use that to shape my life, shape my priorities so that everything I do models and brings glory to you and brings delight to you. In Jesus' name, amen.